Today we're talking, we've been walking through the book of Romans, and in Romans 15, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21 uh, this morning. We've got two more Sundays with this series, and then we'll get into a little Easter series uh, before we go back to the Old Testament uh, at the end of April. So uh, the, the right kind of pride, this message is called the right kind of pride. When you hear the word pride, uh, what, what comes to mind? Oftentimes we have a negative connotation where we'll say things like pride before the fall, uh, that, that he was too proud to admit his faults. We also t- find times where there's a positive connotation with pride. We'll sing the song, proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. free. Okay. <laughs> you guys are the best. All right. uh, we, we might be, man, you see your, your, your child do something amazing. I'm so proud of you, son. I'm so proud of you, daughter, for making that decision. So we see good and, and bad of, of pride. The Hebrew concept of pride, it, it meant it was literally a swelling. That something, our view of something would, would grow. It could mean an exaltation or, or majesty ascribed to something. And you've got to be careful with this synonym. It could also mean to be high. Now, we're living in 2019. I'm not talking about fat tops or red run. Right? We're talking about a different kind of, of exaltation. I don't want to get fired. Um, the pride, whether it's good or bad, it depends on what it is that you're exalting. What it is that you see as majestic. And so, for example, if it's your own head that's swelling... If you think of yourself higher than you ought, if it's, if, it's, if it's your own awesomeness that you're trying to exalt, yeah, that's not great. In fact, James says this, God opposes the proud. So if, if your pride is based in yourself, he says the God of the known universe is opposing you. General principle, you don't want that. So, so he says, don't, don't put pride in yourself, but if it's that God that causes our heart to swell, if it's his name that we long to exalt and lift high, he says, that's actually the reason I created you, was to glorify your God. And so just like faith, I mean, faith, what matters is what is our faith in? We all have faith. What's the object of our faith? It's the same thing about pride. What is it that we're boasting about? What is it that we're exalting? That's the question. And in Romans 12 through 16, this section is Paul telling us what this new life, this new freedom we have and this resurrection power looks like. And this morning, what he wants to unpack for us is how we can live before and serve God with the right kind of pride. So let's dive into the the word together. Um, I believe the point of the passage in verses 14 through 21 is seen in verse 17. He says, in Christ Jesus, then or therefore, so you pay attention to those kind of words, that Paul is, he's, he's kind of building his argument here. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud, there's our word for this morning, proud of my work for God. He has a reason. Paul is putting up his homework on God's refrigerator. He says, I'm proud of what I've done for you, God. So we want to unpack what's going on here. Why is he proud of his work, and what, what does this look like for us? The key here is this phrase, in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm boasting, I'm proud of my work in Christ. You see, pride in oneself is ugly in the eyes of God. We said he opposes the proud. So, so what's our boasting in? Well, if you remember, you walked through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3 said, what about boasting in ourselves? It's excluded. See, boasting in oneself is, is foolish, and it's incorrect. It's sinful because we have nothing to boast about. The only thing that we have earned on our own, the only thing we've accomplished is to receive the eternal wrath of God. Okay, we'll give you a sticker. It's, there's nothing to boast about in ourselves. And oftentimes, what I've found is, is we will, when we're boasting, we'll use kind of subtle language and even at times use spiritual language when really we're just being cocky. 
Well, we'll just go, man, God has just really been blessing us lately. And really what you're doing is, I got to raise suckers. Did you see my new house? Like that, that's the code for that. Or man, all the cool things that God has been doing through me recently, and then you go on for four hours kind of unpacking that for somebody, right? That's still, that is subtly still about you, even though you're talking, using God language. The goal here, what Paul wants to tell us this morning is that our boast is to be in Jesus. In every single thing that we do, in Paul's life and in ours, is to be a boast in Christ, not in ourselves. To do our work in such a way that God gets the glory. That's the right kind of boasting. So three points we want to make this morning. The first one is we want to look at the purpose of Paul's work. What is it that Paul's trying to accomplish? Well, look in, in, in Romans 15, verse 16. He says, my purpose is to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and then in verse 18, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, so I just want to summarize what Paul is trying to say here and what his goal is in his, in his ministry. Paul's purpose is to present people, he says, to present people to God in, in three ways. He says, I want to present them acceptable to God, they would be pleasing to him, that they would be sanctified by the Spirit, we'll unpack that word in a moment, and then obedient through Christ. This is the kind of people I want to present to God. When he uses this word sanctified, the word means to set apart and to set something apart from everything else as pure and dedicated to God and and, and as holy. Now, Jesus, we know, he came to this world to do what? To seek and save the lost. And and the New Testament uses the language of a bride, which has more pertinence to me recently. And he says, I want to present myself a, a pure bride, a spotless bride. A people who are obedient to, to me. And the only way that this bride, the people of God, the believers in Jesus, can be wearing white at the wedding, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, is if God's the one that purifies us. If the Holy Spirit sets us apart as pure and holy. And Paul says, man, I've been given this unique privilege of being a part of this process. That, that I am preaching the gospel to those who have never heard it before. He's fattening the bride. He's stuffing more saved sinners into the dress. It's getting bigger and bigger. It's expandable. It's got like a bunch of Velcro, or what's that word? Uh, Elastic. He's got an elastic dress, right? I don't know what I'm talking about here. Uh, Bachelor, not for long. Uh, So we we also see that he's purifying this bride, not just growing it, but purifying it. He's got the spot remover out. He's taking it to the dry cleaners. He wants us to be pure and spotless before God in the sight of Jesus. Now, this doesn't happen through our own works, our own effort. We see in the Bible, it's the Holy Spirit is the one that makes us holy through the transforming work of God. Now, um, what we see there, therefore, is, is Paul, his purpose is to set apart this bride for, for God. So that's his purpose. Now, number two, we're going to see the, the pride in Paul's work. And this is our, our summation verse in verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work. What's my work? To present people to God, this bride of Christ, and, and what about that work? I'm exalting in it. I like the way John Piper said this. He said, Paul's crowning experience, his ultimate joy is this, is exalting or boasting in Christ and his work through Paul to prepare an offering for God, namely a holy and obedient people. So notice he says here, my ultimate aim is not just to present a people in the sight of God, but it's to get jacked up about it. It's to exalt in it. It's to boast in it. It's to take pride in what I'm doing, to be proud of my work, is what he says, the language that he uses. And he says, if I'm going to boast, though, he makes this very important qualification. Look at verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. He says, the only thing that I'm going to boast about, 
The only thing that can be truly pleasing to God is what Jesus Christ does in me and does through me. I use this picture as often as humanly possible. Uh, this, is, this is my senior year winning the state championship. This is the moment the other team threw up the, the shot at the buzzer. They lose. We win. I run into my coach's arms, and the photographer was right there to get this priceless photo. And, and so this is, I'm in the arms of, of my coach, one of the only people that would have been able to catch me and hold me at that point. And, and Coach Keener, he was a father-like figure in my life. And, and, the, and the only reason... The only reason I could be sitting there, standing there, jumping there, holding a trophy at the end of the season was because of Keener. Before I had even hit puberty, this guy was working with me. Fifth grade, sixth grade, he was teaching me everything I knew about the game. The skills, how to pivot correctly, how to shoot with the right form. He was the one that taught me offense and defense, how to play the game, how to see the game. And beyond that, he was teaching me character, how to become the right kind of person on the court and off the court. So if after the state championship game at our press conference, not that we have it for small schools Alaska, but if I'm at a press conference and I got the microphone and I'm sitting there going, yeah, it's all me, baby. I am the man. Everything I did today, I taught myself. Coached myself from the womb, right? I was bouncing the ball off my mom's, whatever, we were in there. Um, anyway, <laughs> I don't and so, and, and so I take all the credit. What am I doing? I'm boasting in myself. That's a lie. And what I do is I turn and I say, I would never have made it here if it wasn't my coach. And I'm boasting in him. He's the one that taught me. He's the one that developed me. And I thank my coach. I'm boasting in what he has done through me. I was on the court, but it was his work and and through me. This is what Paul is trying to tell us here. One of my favorite verses in all the New Testament, Galatians 6. As for me, Paul says, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus is the only thing I'm going to boast about is what Jesus has done, who Jesus is in and through me, or 1 Corinthians 15. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me, and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. He says, it's not like I'm just laying on the couch. I'm getting after it. But it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. Do you see it? 2 Corinthians, he says the same thing. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness, God tells Paul. Then he says, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses. Why? So the power of Christ can work through me. He says, if I'm going to boast, it's, I got nothing to boast about myself. It's the power, it's the grace, it's the cross of my Savior. See, Paul knew that God was the one who saved him from his sins. God was the one who gave him the special position as an apostle, a sent one to the Gentiles. God was the one who taught Paul everything he knew. Paul, God was the one that developed this character in Paul. God was the one that gave him the love and the endurance and the power and the opportunities to preach the gospel in the first place. So yeah, Paul worked, but Christ was working through him. Now, now here's the important caveat here. That does not make Paul irrelevant It does not make him insignificant. It does not make him undignified. And this is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel simultaneously humbles us and exalts us. It humbles us because we're sinners saved by grace. So we have nothing in our own merit to boast about. And yet at the same time, the gospel exalts us because God dignifies his people by inviting us into not just being his children, but into this work of going out and fattening and purifying the bride a beautiful, beautiful thing, the gospel that both brings us low and lifts us high in Jesus. 
And, and, and one of the takeaways here is we should be a people who celebrate, a people who party, a people who are excited about what God is doing. It's important to boast in our God. I was thinking about this this last year, man. God has done some incredible things in our church. Jesse was asking for that support. We saw Anna Martin, when God put it on her heart to go to New Zealand, and overnight, our church raises $9,000 and sends her to New Zealand. And now she's serving the Lord and growing like wildfire over there. That's, that's an incredible thing to celebrate. We see in, in our own church, we see this last three years, God has tripled the size of our, we didn't know where to put people today. We were stuffing people up in the balcony. We don't have a balcony. <laughs> so where are they? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> We, we see, and, and more importantly, because those are just numbers, but more importantly than that, God is giving victory over sin. Every week in Celebrate Recovery, we're seeing people find victory over pornography, over drugs, over alcohol, over fear, over anger, over codependency. God is at work. We see it. And every time a sinner is saved, the dead is raised to life, we should be doing spiritual jumping jacks. We could do physical jumping jacks. But it's boasting in God, what he's doing in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will present her to myself without spot or blemish. It's ultimately his work. So we're boasting in him, not ourselves. We have the privilege of doing what we're doing by grace through faith. And like Paul, we have to understand we have an utter dependency if we're going to do anything that's pleasing to God, it must be in and through Jesus. There was a little boy who was raised in a church where there was a lot of stained glass windows, and um, they, they had the likeness of some of the great saints, Paul and Stephen and Luke and, and Matthew, and um, this boy grew up watching these windows, and he was in Sunday school class one morning, and the teacher said, uh, he asked the, the students, he said, children, what is a saint? What does that mean? What's a saint? And the little boy piped up, and this is what he had to say. A saint is a person that the light shines through. Now, he didn't know what he was saying, right? He, he, he meant the windows, dumb kid. No. Um, he, but that's actually really good theology, isn't it? A saint is one through whom the light shines. The light doesn't come from our own source, but as his vessels of mercy, the light shines through us. Paul's saying, when I look back at my life and I see that the light has shone through, I'm proud of and I rejoice in what God has done in and through me, and that's to be our attitude as well. What a privilege, what a joy. So the process, um, that we looked at the, the purpose of Paul's work to set aside a people for God, and we saw the, the pride in his work, that he exalts in what Jesus is doing. Number three, the process for Paul's work. Some important ministry principles that he wants to teach us about in, in this passage. First of all, we look at Paul's tutelage, his teaching style, his, his approach. Uh, we see in this some, um, some unhealthy and, and healthy leadership principles for us. Uh, unhealthy leadership, unhealthy leadership micromanages unhealthy leadership micromanages like in this cartoon there's no hyphen at micromanager you see what he's that's irony um the 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 church often sees this happen where you'll have the one kind of pastor king in this case me and, and and if they micromanage they try to do everything themselves so the micromanaging unhealthy leader has their fingers in absolutely everything. That I'd be telling the worship team, I actually don't trust you guys. I'll pick out the songs, right? You guys, don't, and here, just you know, John, give me the uh, guitar, and I'll do some sick licks or whatever. I'll, you know, I'll I'll do it. You just you don't know. You've only been playing guitar for like sixty years. You don't know what you're doing. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, that's more than that. Um, but <laughs> second service, I always get a little. Um, where was I? Oh. So I'm not, I'm not going to the refreshments team and telling them, you all are not making the muffins right. 
There's way too much gluten in there. It's 2019, right? I'll do it. I'll do the coffee. I'll do it. I don't go up to the women's Bible study, and you guys don't know what you're doing. If there's anybody qualified to tell other women how to be a woman of God, it's me, right? I mean, we don't, that, that's not healthy leadership. How unhealthy leadership micromanages. Healthy leadership produces other capable leaders, produces other capable leaders. And, and here's what Paul says in this verse, the first couple verses of our passage. Verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So he says, I'm looking at the Roman church, and you know what I see? I see a capable people. I see people who are full of goodness. Now, did he actually just stumble across the one group of people who aren't sinners? No, of course not. If there's goodness in them, where does that, where does that light come from? Jesus Christ came to this earth. He was the only one who ever lived a truly good life. And so for them to be full of goodness is to be full of Jesus. He says, you've got Jesus in you. You've got the Spirit of God in you. And then he says, you're filled with all knowledge. You have the word of truth. You've been taught you know these things. You know the gospel. And here he says, are able to instruct one another. This is discipleship. What, he, what he's telling them is you all are capable. You are fully capable of doing the ministry. Of doing the ministry. And the word here, to instruct, it means to warn or confront. He says you have the ability to teach one another, to warn one another as fellow believers. Now he says, here's my role in this, verse 15. But on some points, I've written you to, very uh, to you very boldly by way of reminder. He says, now I'm here to kind of help guide you in general. So I wrote you this, this book, the, the Gospel of, to the Romans, the letter to the Romans. And what's he doing? He's, um, he's reminding them of the gospel, the basic truths of the Christian life. And then he wants, to, he wants to correct them on a few things. He wants to talk about their attitude toward the government in chapter 13. He wants to address the way that they're living as weaker and stronger brothers with different convictions and conscience. We talked about that in chapter 14. So he says, I need to correct you a little bit. I need to remind you a little bit. But that's just some general guiding principle. And, and this is good discipleship. Paul says, I'm not an obstetrician. I'm not just here to deliver babies who then stay babies. We don't want a 34-year-old who's still being burped and fed and had his, having his diaper changed by somebody else. That's not healthy. He says, I'm not here just to make babies who stay babies. I'm not just an obstetrician. I'm a pediatrician. That I'm here to see, yes, to see people born into the family of God, but then to see those babies grow up to be full, independent adults who can then go out and make other babies, who can go out and be baby makers. That's the process in the physical world, and that's also the process of spiritual discipleship. So Paul says, I'm not coming to your church and doing all the work. I'm not going to preach the sermon and worship lead and bake your muffins and teach the Sunday school class. He says, I, I've come to preach the gospel to you. And then the Holy Spirit, the portable Jesus that lives inside of each and every one of you, makes you plenty capable for you all to be ministers, all to serve one another in this world. He says, I'm just here to guide you. That's what the word elder means. It's an overseer. Someone who oversees, not micromanages, but someone who guides the general spiritual direction of the church. And we see this, our vision at Peninsula Grace, uh, the mission, we just take it right out of the Bible. It says, we are, we are to present everyone complete in Christ. That's our end game. That's what Paul is saying here. To present this bride pure and spotless in God's sight. That's just another way of wording that. Complete, the word complete there means mature. So again, not just babies, but fully independent adults who look just like Jesus. That's where we're going with all of this. We want to see as many people as possible mature in Christ. So what's the vision for our church? Is to be a gospel-centered community because it comes through the gospel of Jesus and nowhere else that we're reproducing disciples of, of Jesus. 
We believe it's this kind of discipleship where everybody is working to instruct one another, to confront one another, to see this happen. We're all engaged. And so our method is to engage, equip, and and empower. Um, To engage, we're called to reach out to the lost, to preach the gospel to sinners, to see the dead raised to life. But then we don't stop there. We're not just making babies. We want to see those babies grow up into adults. And so we equip, filled with Jesus' goodness and Jesus' word, and then we empower them to go out and make other disciples. That's the process that we are inviting, being invited into by, by God. And so I want to see that here at Peninsula Grace, whether it's in a home group or a ministry team or relationships that you're naturally forming, or, or we see it in Bible studies, discipleship, accountability groups. We want to see a group of spirit-filled believers who are full of Jesus' knowledge and his power and his goodness, who are teaching each other, who are warning each other when we're falling into sin, gently and humbly confronting when we need to confront, to reach out to those that we know of that are hurting and downtrodden, to, to come alongside and forgive one another when we inevitably fail one another, to point each other to Jesus. That's the ministry, Paul says, each of us as believers to be instructing one another. So that's his tutelage. That's, that's how he teaches. But then also we look at his tool belt. He says, I've been given some things by God that I use to do this ministry. In verse 18, he says, I do it by word and deed. By word and deed. Paul spoke and he acted. And then verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, Paul performed miracles. That was part of the deeds that he's talking about here. And then he says, by the power of the Spirit of God. So what he shows here is that the, God, the Holy Spirit's speaking through Paul. The Holy Spirit's acting and working through Paul. The Holy Spirit's performing miracles through Paul, which again takes us back to why God gets the credit, why he's boasting in his God, because it's ultimately God's work in and through him. Now, what does he say here? Primarily, he says by word and by deed. So, by word, what, what word is he talking about? What is it that he's speaking? Well, if you read this book, you see very clearly he's talking about the gospel. We finish up this section, verse 19, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. That word just means good news. He's speaking, proclaiming the word, the good news of Jesus. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. We'll touch on that more next week. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. The word that he's speaking is the gospel, the good news that Jesus declares us right in God's sight, that Jesus defeated the power of sin and death, that Jesus is making us more and more like himself, that Jesus is coming back one day to capture his bride and to be fully free from the presence of sin. That's the work of Jesus. And our job is to put faith in that Jesus, to boast in that Jesus. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. Romans 10, 17, he came by word, but he also came by deed. He came by deed. Now, Paul did things that verified the gospel that he was preaching. Look in Acts 14. But the apostles stayed there a long time, preaching boldly about the grace of God. There's the word, the gospel. And the Lord proved their message was true. How? By giving them power to do miraculous signs and wonders. So he says the Holy Spirit backed or validated their authority and the message they were preaching by doing signs and wonders as they would heal people, cast out demons, they would do all sorts of miracles. Now you might initially, as I'm reading this text, going, well, wait a second, what about today? What, what do we, do we, do we not, are we supposed to see these kind of miracles today? What about gospel confirming miracles? Because how cool would it be if we're walking around Soldotna Creek Park and we're coming up to someone saying, believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. And then it's heal a guy. That'd be amazing, Right? cast a demon out of a tourist, because, let's be real, um, (laughs) 
Wouldn't that help our witness? Like, if we're doing these crazy miracles, wouldn't a lot more people come to faith? Like, is that supposed to exist today? So, so here's my answer based on my understanding of Scripture, and I know this will probably be a little controversial. My email is justin at peninsulagrace.org. I would say this. Gospel-confirming miracles today. I would say yes, but not to the extent that we saw in the Gospels and in the, in the book of Acts and in the early church. Now, here's my qualification. So I'd say yes, because as I read through the New Testament, I don't see any super, to me, and, and scholars differ on this, okay, but, but I don't see any compelling reason to say that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the miracles, have just totally ceased. I, I don't see it. I don't, I don't see that there. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about these gifts that God gave to the church, not just the apostles, but to the church. And he, he mentions prophecy and miracles and healing and tongues. And in fact, two chapters later, he says, my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking of tongues. Very explicitly there, don't stop, don't forbid other people from speaking in tongues. Now, does there need to be order and rule? Have we seen abuse of that? Absolutely. But he never just shuts it down explicitly in the New Testament. But, I would say this, yes, but probably not to the same extent as we saw back then, and here's why. So we're looking for this family pastor candidate, and when you have someone looking for a job, uh, what do they first do? They supply you with, a, with references, someone to tell you about how they've done in the past and who they are, and a resume, or as we call it, the love me papers, right? You're proving why it is somebody should hire you. And so you come with these references and this resume and a cover letter and everything to show them who you are, kind of signs and wonders to back who it is that you say that you are. Need some proof that you're a good guy. But once they start working here, once they start serving here, after a time, you no longer need that proof anymore, right? You see them in the flesh. So they don't need to carry around, like staple their resume to their their chest. I still don't carry my references around in case anybody's asking. So what happens? Over time, that that foundation has been laid. No longer need those, those signs. See, when, when Jesus came, he had, to, he had to establish his authority as God, as Savior of the world. John 5 says it this way, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So here Jesus comes, claiming to be God, claiming to be the Savior of the world. And so these miracles that he does as he walks on water and he casts out demons and as he gives sight to the blind, these, these miracles confirm that he is who he says he is. And then we see the apostles laying down the foundation for the church in the book of Acts. And it's the same thing. Paul says this about himself in 2 Corinthians 12. When I was with you, I certainly gave you proof that I'm an apostle. For I patiently did many signs and wonders and miracles among you. So what we see happening here early on is these signs and wonders by God through the Spirit that that prove that Jesus is the Son of God and that these foundations are being laid for the church. Now, I want to be clear, after Jesus goes back to heaven, after the apostles lay the foundation, it's not like all of a sudden the supernatural elements of God's work disappear. Of course not. You realize every time a sinner is saved from their sin, it's a miracle. We're witnessing a resurrection. Our God is very much at work and in the business of doing supernatural miracles today. However, what we see is, in general, this central focus shifting toward the word, the written word of God. And the word, what's it pointing us back to? These very signs and wonders that Jesus did, that the apostles did. They didn't have the New Testament back then because they were living it out. So now we have this word that tells us about these signs and wonders. And so that doesn't mean that they've ceased altogether, but it does mean the centrality of their necessity has shifted from these signs and wonders to the word of God. But I'll tell you, even today, if you go to places in the world where the gospel's still going, 
some of the ends of the earth, you will see some of these signs and wonders very much alive, talked to missionaries with that firsthand experience themselves. So, so two pitfalls to avoid in here. I know we're, we're opening a little bit of a can of worms, but two pitfalls to avoid. Number one, we can fall in the, in the error of expecting too many miracles. Where we might put God in a box and treat him like a vending machine. Where we just say, God, you said you do miracles, so when I say, you do it. Heal this person. I don't want my family member to be sick. I want you to heal me. And God doesn't roll like that. In Romans chapter 8, we see very clearly, you and I live in unredeemed bodies. That we're groaning. That we're waiting for 2.0 version of our resurrected bodies like Jesus has. And so that's a day coming. And we still live in this fallen world with healing, with, with, with sicknesses and brokenness. And God's not just going to fix all of that for us. So we can expect too many miracles, but where I would say most of us in the West fall is in the pitfall of expecting too few miracles. See, see we're, we're all about evangelism and, and studying the Word of God and programs, things that we can kind of touch and see, but a lot of us in the West get scared of, of supernatural elements to, to believe. But what does the Bible say? Our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against the, the rulers and the powers, the spiritual warfare. Satan and his cronies doing battle against the Holy Spirit. And it's truth and lies, and it's a spiritual, it's a spiritual battle. And we need to pray for our God to do miracles, for him to raise the dead. And man, how cool. God shows himself alive and well. And we pray for a brother or sister who's hurting. We say, God, I pray that you would heal them. Heal them in a way that no surgeon or doctor could, so that you get all the glory. Our God is still in the business of doing miracles. I love the prayer in Acts chapter 4. They're being persecuted. The early church is being persecuted for preaching the gospel. And they pray this, Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. So the first thing they pray for is boldness in preaching the gospel. Then they pray, stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they pray for both. They pray for boldness to preach the word and they pray for the deeds to validate what they're doing. And then here's the answer to their prayer. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. So they asked for healing, if that be his will. But ultimately their concern was salvation. And therefore the ultimate focus was on the gospel. And God answers their prayer by giving them boldness to speak the truth. So what I would say is we don't get to tell God how and when he performs miracles. That's God's business. It's God's work. But if we don't pray, if we don't ask for him to move, it's God that saves souls, not any of us. It's God that heals. It's God that raises the dead, not any of us. And so this brings us full circle back to our boasting. We're not boasting in ourselves and our ability to control God and our circumstances. We're boasting in him and trusting his timing, his way, and his will. So I ask you, what are you boasting in this morning? Do you have the wrong kind of pride that boasts in yourself? And here's what, that'll play out. We'll become control freaks. We're trying to control our own universe. We'll try to micromanage other people. And it leads us only to fear and depression. I don't recommend that. The right kind of fear, the right kind of fear is what Paul sums up in, in chapter 15 here. That we are to become a people who get geeked about, who get downright giddy, who want to shout from the rooftops what Jesus Christ is doing in and through us to the glory of God of God, that we would boast only in the cross. Father, we thank you that Jesus came to this world to perform the greatest miracle ever performed, as he died in our, in our place, that he took the punishment for our sins, and then three days later, he rose again. And now, in Christ, we can become a new people, 
your bride, set apart from the rest of this world, being cleansed by the word and by the Holy Spirit, and that you've invited us into this beautiful privilege of going out and adding to that bride, of of growing and purifying that bride. May we be a people who celebrate your work, that you're making disciples of all nations, and that you've given us the privilege of being a part of that. And Father, as we walk forward in that beautiful ministry, like Paul, may we boast, be proud of our work, but only boasting in the power and grace and cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. It's what he's doing in and through us that will be pleasing to you, that will last for eternity, that's worth boasting about. And so not in ourselves, Lord, humble us, give us repentance in the areas that we're boasting in ourselves and try to control things, micromanage things on our own, that we might become a people who exalt, who, who, who lift high, who, who make swollen the name of Jesus in our community and the ends of the earth, We boast in his name alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.